1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 to 10 in detail this morning. 1 John chapter 1. Let's get some context by reading verses 1 through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have heard and seen, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no darkness, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus is recorded as speaking the following words to a super-religious man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. When the Son of God broke into earth history and coming to earth and being born of a virgin as Jesus Christ, he was not received. The world was dark, and he broke into that darkness. But overall, except for a small minority, people did not receive him. People rejected him. And John tells us why, and that is that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, their love for their own sin was greater than their desire to be freed from it. 
And so they hated the light that exposed their darkness. Well, that's true of every one of us before we were saved. Before we were born again, we lived in darkness. We did not know this was the case until the Holy Spirit opened our eyes by shining the light of the gospel into our hearts. The book of Ephesians says that as unbelievers, we walked in the futility of our minds. Our minds were occupied with futile things, things of the flesh, things of the world. Why? Because we were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. So like most of the people who were on the earth when Jesus came, we were in darkness before we were saved, alienated from God, ignorant. Why? Because of the hardness of our heart. So it was a combination kind of darkness. It was a darkness that was partly ignorance and partly willfulness. Partly because of a lack of knowledge, partly because of a love for our sin. But the gospel breaks into this darkness. And at conversion, something supernatural occurs through the saving power of the gospel. The light of the gospel breaks into the darkness. Colossians 1.12 tells us that God qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, in the light of knowledge, in the light of truth. God delivered us, Paul goes on to say, God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were once citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and now, because of the gospel, because of the work of Christ for us, and the Holy Spirit applying that work to our lives in conversion, we are now citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of light. Now, this theme of the light being a path or, or believers walking in the light is not new to the New Testament but it is a characteristic of God's people throughout biblical history. For example, Psalm 56:13 says, "For you have saved my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living." So even Old Testament believers understood that God you saved me so that I would walk in the light implying then that you pulled me out of darkness and now this whole new world of light is what I live in. Psalm 89, 15, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Lord, they walk in the light of your face. 
or Isaiah 50:10. Who is among you who fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. If you find yourself walking in darkness, the prophet is saying, the answer is to turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord and his light will change you. The light of his word. So to walk in the light of the Lord means to walk in the light of his word. For example, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God's word is the only trustworthy light. Psalm 119.30, the unfolding of your words gives me light. It gives understanding to the simple. So this is not a new concept. Instead, the Apostle John is building upon something that has been taught throughout biblical history. And what John is doing here in this passage before us is he is connecting our walking in the light to the nature and character of God who is light. And he's connecting our walking in the light with our having fellowship with God, which we learned about last week. Verse 3. John says he wants us to walk in fellowship with God, that we would have fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So when we come to Christ and we are converted, we are saved, we are brought into the same fellowship that the Son enjoys with the Father. We have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God calls us to this new walk, that we would no longer walk in darkness, but that now we would walk in light. And he calls us to practice four ongoing spiritual disciplines. Number one, take notice that to walk in the light, you must abide in the truth and biblical fellowship. To walk in the light means you need to walk in the light of his word, which is the truth. And this is the only sure way we know that we are walking in the light. It's not by our feelings. It's not by following our heart. It's by following God's word. It's by walking in the light of his word. Then we know that we are walking in the light. Look at what he says in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is the source of light. Of course, we know that from Genesis 1. He's the source of physical light. And, and when I, when I say physical, I don't mean that light is something that we can touch and hold in our hand, but light being composed of photons and electromagnetic radiation and whatever else makes up the mystery of light. God is the source of that light. He is 
light. In fact, uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, we have a picture of the new Jerusalem, heaven coming down to earth, and it says that there will be no need for the sun or the moon because the Lamb will be the light. Jesus, the light of the world, will be the light of heaven. There will be no need for electricity or light switches. It will all be brilliant. But also, God is the source of spiritual light. Well, what, what is spiritual light? Well, spiritual light is truth that comes to us through his word that then pierces into the innermost parts of our being and breathes new life to our soul. It illuminates the darkness so that we might see Christ. And even Satan knows this because 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that one of the ways that Satan opposes the work of Christ and the work of the gospel is by blinding the hearts of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of Christ. So understand that if you're here this morning with the rest of us and you can see the light of the glory of Christ, you see how beautiful Christ is and how sufficient he is for your spiritual needs. That didn't happen accidentally, and that didn't happen because you woke up one day and decided to be smarter than other people. It is because God, through the gospel, broke into your darkness, and the light went into your soul, and you saw the truth, and you turned to the truth. So you see in the Bible this connection between light and truth. And John does the same thing here. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say then, verse 6, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice, what? The truth. So again, you see this connection between truth and light. And, and it's so thoroughly connected and so constant, these two, in their companionship with one another, that John says, if a professing Christian walks in the darkness, in other words, someone who says they know Jesus, and yet the general pattern of their life remains in darkness, John says they are a liar. They are lying to themselves. They are lying to God. They are lying to others around them because John says that they actually don't know God. When you don't practice the truth, see, that's the test. The test isn't merely what comes out of your mouth. The test is your life. What fruit does your life bear? That's what John is doing. And remember, we learned last week that the purpose of 1 John is so that we might know that we have eternal life. And so throughout this little book, we find various tests of genuine faith, tests of, of authentic saving faith. And John is presenting us with one here, the test of Practicing the truth. 
Now, of course, this doesn't mean perfectionism because all of us struggle. We still sin, even in knowing Christ and being forgiven and walking in the light. There are times we slip back into the darkness, right? And that's why we have the verses that are coming uh, shortly. But John is here asking us to test the general framework of our life and the general pattern of our life. Is the pattern of our life one of walking in the truth according to the word of God? Or are we one of those professing Christians who knows how to talk about Jesus, but there's not a whole lot in our life to back it up? You might say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. Well, if that's the case, then I would question whether or not you're a Christian at all. And that's what John would question. And so these are tests for our benefit as the Word of God, the searchlight of the Word of God goes into our soul and into our heart. Because then you see in verse 7, but if we walk in the light... If the general pattern of our life as a follower of Christ is that we are walking in the truth, we're walking in the light, we're following his word as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. So if the general pattern of our life is that we are walking in the light of the truth, then that, that results in fellowship with one another. Fellowship with God. So walking in the light of Christ requires walking in the truth of Christ. And this confirms the reality of our salvation. And it's also the basis then of authentic Christian fellowship. That's what John is saying. In other words, you cannot have authentic fellowship with an unbeliever because you don't have the most significant thing in common. There is no true Christian community with those who remain in darkness because now God has brought you into the light and so you see things differently. I remember this within weeks after I got saved in the spring of 1984, and how all of a sudden, just in inexplicable ways, I started to see things differently. Things I had just never even thought of before. And all of a sudden, as I was reading my Bible, I was starting to see things and truth jumping off the page and God shining his light into my soul. What a glorious thing this is. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. And so John is saying that truth and truthfulness go together. That, that the absence of dishonesty in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another is the foundation of true fellowship. It's the foundation of godly relationships. The ESV Study Bible says it this way, the symbolism of light as knowledge also implies that when Christians walk in the light, their lives will be known 
and will not contain hidden sins, falsehoods, or deception. In other words, the more that we grow in the light of God's word, the more authentic we want to be, the more transparent we want to be, the less we will exert such great effort to hide who we really are. Of course, there's a level of deception that remains in all of us in unredeemed flesh that God continues to work on and and bring us more into an authentic walk with him. And so when God shows us our sin, we should say, thank you, Lord. We shouldn't get angry at him for it. Instead, we should say, thank you, Lord, for shining your light into deeper crevices of my soul that now I see how sinful I really am. Light fellowships with light. That's what John is saying. And the basis of that fellowship is clear. Look at the end of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He continually cleanses us. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was so thorough, so thoroughly acceptable by God, so sufficient that that it continues to cleanse us from all sin. Not just our past sin, but even our present sin struggles and our future sin. This is how sufficient the work of Christ is for us. So when a true believer sees their sin, they run back to Jesus We run back to the cross and and there we remember the sacrificial death of Christ and there we remember the empty tomb which says that Christ was victorious over sin and therefore we can be victorious over sin. And there we find an everlasting fountain of mercy that flows out of the perfection of the work of Christ. His blood, says in verse 7. That is, his perfect and complete work which atoned for our sins and met all of the demands of Old Testament law and the requirements of the holy God. That is what continues to cleanse us from all sin. Abiding in The truth of Christ, John is saying, leads to remaining in true fellowship with others. And this is what it means to walk in the light of Christ. There's a second spiritual discipline that you need to practice. Number two, agree with God about your sinfulness. Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So verse 8 is a warning of what is true of the opposite. In other words, the person who does not see their sin, if instead in pride and stubbornness says, I have no sin, that person is deceiving themselves. And the truth is not in them. 
That's a warning to us. I remember the first time I had to confront someone as a pastor with this verse, and it was um, an older uh, woman in our church who had been a missionary, and um, she had been impacted by some teaching that we might just put under the umbrella of antinomianism, which is um, a disrespect for God's law um, and, and holiness. And she was so upset with me one day after church, and I didn't know why I could tell while I was preaching. It was kind of showing itself in her countenance. And she talked to me later uh, in the week, and she said, I just really disagree with what you preached on Sunday. And I said, well, what did I preach? What did you disagree with? Well, you said that as Christians that we still sin and that when we sin, we need to confess our sins to God. And I said, well, what was, what was wrong with that? Well, she said, now that we're Christians, we're free from the law, we're free from sin, we don't struggle with sin anymore. And so this verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, First John 1, 9, isn't for believers, it's for unbelievers. And I, I tried my best, I, I wasn't successful, because eventually she left the church, but I tried my best to show her the context of this verse, that First John is written to believers, that John repeatedly, at least six times, calls us little children, he refers to us as being the beloved of God. And then I had to challenge her with verse 8. I said, is it possible that your view lines up more with verse 8? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Didn't go over very well. <laughs> but such is the life of a pastor. <laughs> so... Obviously, this must be true at the time of conversion, that we see our sinfulness. But it continues throughout our Christian life because the rest of our Christian life is followed by what? Sanctification. See, she had a misunderstanding of salvation. She did not understand that salvation is more about transformation than it is about putting a get-out-of-hell-free card in your back pocket when you get saved. God saves us from our sin, but he saves us for himself, that we then would learn to walk in the light. And as we're walking in the light, something very natural is going to happen. That light is going to expose areas of our life that are still tucked away in darkness. Motives of our heart that we didn't know existed. Things that we used to excuse as just, nah, wasn't the, the kindest thing to do. Now we see as, no, that was actually sinful because I placed myself above another person in order to attack them. And so on and so forth. I mean, if you don't see yourself as a sinner... 
then I ask you, what in the world did you come to Jesus to save you from? Was it just to save you from all the bad mistakes you've made in your life and you thought that maybe Jesus could help you be better? We have to agree with God about our sinfulness because the contrast to that is verse 8, which is frightening and sobering. If we, have, if we say we have no sin, then the truth is not in us. We've deceived ourselves. If we don't think that we are sinful at the very core of our being, even as believers who are being sanctified, being redeemed, looking forward to that final day of redemption, when we shall be fully sanctified, oh, glory, what a day that'll be. If we don't see ourselves this way, then we're not functioning in the realm of truth. Instead, we're living a lie. So you need to agree with God about your sinfulness. And then, of course, agree with him when he convicts you of specific sins, which then he goes on in verse 9. Number three, admit your sins to God and others. So agreeing with God about your sinfulness leads then to a desire and a willingness to admit when you sin. Okay? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, if we say we have not sinned, repetitive of verse 8, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now the word confess is a very important word in verse 9. It means literally to say the same thing. It means to agree. So when we biblically confess our sins to God, what we are doing is we are saying, God, I agree with your infallible assessment of my life and my heart, and your word tells me that, that this in my life is sin, and therefore I'm not going to argue with you about it. I agree with you that this is sinful. And I'm coming to you because having come to this understanding of agreeing with you, I need your forgiveness. See, this is very different from what the world would call an apology. So I want you to think through this contrast with me for a few moments. I've put together this chart of comparison. This is just kind of a starting point. You could go further, but comparing worldly apology with biblical confession because we live in a, in a world that is uh, pretty dominated by the concept of apology, which so often falls short of what the Bible calls confession. So think through this with me for a moment. Worldly apology feels bad about the consequences, 
In other words, I feel bad about what I did, I feel bad about what I said to you, or I feel bad about this or that because of, of the consequences that now I have to live with. This would be what the Bible would call regret as opposed to repentance. See, regret is just when we feel bad about we did, about what we did, because now we have to suffer the consequences of what we did. It is not internally convicted by what we did, but only sorry that we got caught. Whereas biblical confession flows from a humble and repentant heart. See, this is the difference between regret and repentance. The humble and repentant heart doesn't just say, well, I feel lousy because of the lousy consequences that my lousy actions brought into my lousy life. No, it's, I see that what I did was wrong as defined by God. And therefore, I want to turn from it. 2 Corinthians 7.10, key verse, write this down. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So in other words, regret is just feeling bad about what you did or feeling bad that you got caught. It's not because you are internally convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you have first and foremost offended God. And now you need forgiveness. And if that offense then involved another person, you not only need vertical forgiveness, but you also need horizontal forgiveness from the person or persons that you sinned against. Secondly, worldly apology fails to acknowledge the guilt of sin. An apology does not own up to the activity of the sinful heart that produced the hurt. In other words, I just, I apologize for that. You know, like, um, like if I'm at Aldi doing some shopping and I accidentally, you know, bump my cart into the person in front of me, well, I didn't willfully sin against them unless I really thought, ooh, this would be fun. <laughs> but if it was an accident, then I say, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. This happened to me on the plane uh, earlier this week as I was flying to Memphis for a conference. I got up and um, <clears throat> it was early morning, so the lights inside the plane uh, we're still off. And I got up to use the restroom, and so I had to crawl, you know, from the window seat across. And, and to stabilize myself, I had to put my hand on the seat back in front of me. Well, unbeknownst to me, my, my pinky finger had caught some of the hair of the woman in front of me. And she quickly informed me of what I had done. And she was not happy. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, really sorry. You know, so that's an apology for something that accidentally happened that I didn't in, that didn't involve my will. It didn't involve the the conscious activity of my sinful heart. Does that make sense? So an apology doesn't recognize that there's something going on in the heart that produces the hurt. 
whereas confession admits guilt of sin against God and others. A confession understands that more has happened than simply making a mistake. It sees its need as being deeper and more serious. For example, Psalm 51, which is one of my favorite uh, prayers of confession. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. In fact, if you don't know how to confess sin biblically, I would encourage you to start by using Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 and begin to make that your own. And God will use that to help you to see a, a much more, have a much more thorough understanding of what is going on inside of you when you sin. Psalm 51, David says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. You see, David is growing beyond understanding sin as something that he just simply does as bad behavior, but as something that originated inside of him. And then he goes on to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David comes to this understanding of of knowing how he needs the cleansing of God deep within him. Like, Like Peter came to understand in John 13 when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and when Peter's eyes were opened as to what he really needed, he said, he said to Jesus, oh, not, not my, not my feet only, but my whole being. Peter understood that's the kind of deep cleansing he needed. It wasn't, oops, I did it again. Would you, would you forgive me? But oops, I did it again. Would you, you know, I apologize. No, it was a God. There's something going on in my heart that needs to change. All right? Worldly apology, thirdly, says, I'm sorry, I apologize. And that, that's where it ends. Whereas a biblical confession says, I was wrong, will you forgive me? So there's an admission of guilt in a biblical confession, and there's a request that there be some kind of transaction because it recognizes that sin breaks fellowship. And there's a need to to restore that fellowship whether it's with God or with others. So the word confess, as I already said, means to agree. It means to say the same thing. The repentant person sees that they need forgiveness, cleansing, a removal of debt, and requests that cleansing. That's what we see throughout the Scriptures. And then finally, in a worldly apology typically fails to ask for a response. In fact, it doesn't even require a response. It's just like, well, I got that off my shoulders. Now you'll just have to deal with it. And so no transaction occurs. Whereas in biblical confession, the the slate is cleared through forgiveness. Why? Because you've admitted you're wrong, you've asked for forgiveness, and that person, if they grant you forgiveness then that slate is wiped clean and now the relationship can continue to strengthen from there. Forgiveness is granted because it is requested. So there's a transaction. 
And so there's, there's those double aspects of, of forgiveness where we're commanded in Scripture to forgive others from our heart and to let love cover a multitude of sins. And yet there's also those times in which forgiveness is a transaction whereby a person recognizes they need it, they ask for it, we give it to them just as God so freely gives it to us. Now, go back to verse 9, because this is really significant. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we agree with God, we say the same thing as God, we confess our sins to him, he is, what, faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful. What does that mean? He's faithful to his covenant promises. He's faithful to what he has said in his word about his forgiveness that, that like Micah 7 says, that, that God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Or Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins against them no more. That's God's forgiveness. And he's faithful to do that. So we're not begging and pleading with God for forgiveness based upon our promises to do better in the future. We are banking upon something that's already true of God. Have you ever confessed to God that way? The way I did early on in my Christian life is like, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'll do better. I will do better. My faith was more in my ability to do better than it was in my resting in the finished work of Christ. He's already cleansed me. And he's just. He's just to forgive. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you would think it would say, and he's just to condemn. He's just to punish. He's just to... But no, he's just to forgive. What does that call our attention to? It calls our attention to Christ, the cross, where, where justice and mercy kissed and love and grace flowed out. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3 that, that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because when we have faith in Jesus, we are, we are thanking God that he already carried out his justice. He already carried out his justice against our sin in Christ. And then we can know that we are cleansed, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But again, if we are resistant and against confession, proud in our hearts, refusing to acknowledge our wrong, there's a strong warning in verse 10. We make God a liar. Well, how do we make God a liar by being so proud that we can't confess our sins? Well, because God has already told us what we're like, and now we're saying, I disagree with you, God. I'm not really as bad as you say I am. And his word is not in us. It's a strong warning. 
So we need to admit our sin to God and to others. And then fourthly, notice, uh, fourth spiritual discipline. Assure yourself of the sufficiency of Christ. Assure yourself of the sufficiency of Christ. Chapter 2. My little children. I love that language that John uses. So tender, so gracious, so filled with love and community and fellowship. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you because I don't want you to sin more and more and more. I want you to sin less. I want you to walk in holiness. I write these so that you may not sin. That's another way of of noticing that he's not teaching cheap grace here. That, That says, oh, God will forgive you, so go on and sin some more. You know, because... Doesn't the Bible say where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? So, hey, I want more grace, so let me sin some more so I get more grace. Well, obviously, that is not what John is saying. He's saying, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we as believers do sin, we rest in Jesus, who is our advocate. There's a courtroom picture going on here. Jesus is our attorney. And he stands up. And he, do, he doesn't defend us based upon our righteousness, but he defends us based upon his righteousness. And he says, see these nails in my hands. I already paid for that Touch's goon. Your justice was already satisfied in me. And he now has my righteousness because I gave it to him as a gift of grace based on faith. That advocate stands up in the courtroom of heaven and says, forgiven, already forgiven. That's such a great comfort because Revelation says that Satan accuses the brethren day and night. He's always accusing us. And you and I both know we give him more than enough ammunition to use to accuse us. And yet, Jesus, the crucified, risen, ascended Son of God, says, no, I am his advocate. I am her advocate. I have already paid the price. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. We talked about this word at great length in September when we were going through the bridge to eternal life, but it refers to the mercy seat where, where God's justice and anger were all taken out upon that sacrifice. And Jesus became the mercy seat that we so desperately need. So in the death of Christ, the wrath of God has been appeased. His righteousness was displayed as both the just and the justifier of those who come to faith in Jesus. And John says that this is not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. 
In other words, all nations, all kinds of sinners, every nation, every ethnicity. And it's helpful for us to remember that, that the first Christians were also Jews. First Christians in the Bible were, were also Jews. And then the gospel then spread to the Gentiles. And so there are times in which uh, the apostles say to their readers things like this. It's not just you and me. We're not the only ones who are forgiven by the grace of God in Christ. But this sacrifice of Christ is so infinite, so sufficient, so complete, it is going to be made available to the whole world. And through that, God will draw to himself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The effectiveness of the sacrifice of the Son of God is infinite because he is infinite. But its cleansing power is only experienced by those who believe. Only those who repent and believe in Christ can know the cleansing power of Christ and rest in him. What a glorious Savior we have. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for lifting up the glory of the Lord Jesus before us this morning, that we may see your holiness, that we may see our sinfulness, and that though if we are in Christ, we already have experienced your complete cleansing from the standpoint of you as our judge, we recognize that we continue to need your cleansing from the standpoint of you being our father in our family relationship with you. When we sin and we displease you and we invite your discipline into our lives, you want us to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge our sin, to confess it to you, to agree with you, so that you may display your faithfulness and your justice once again. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, which continues to cleanse us from all of our sin. In his name we pray. Amen.